No warning today, you know what childbirth is and what it entails. Even today, childbirth can be arduous, even dangerous. So how did women deal with the challenges of giving birth in antiquity? Today we'll be zooming through the ages and stop just short of the medieval era. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. going to start a bit further back than usual today, so you're really going to have to get your prehistory hats on. The oldest hominin fossils found so far date back about 7 million years and belong to ancestors of modern humans. These hominins didn't share many of our features, except perhaps one big one. Some researchers believe that hominins were walking upright on two legs. To walk on two legs efficiently, the hominin skeleton had to be pushed and pulled into a new configuration, and that affected the pelvis. Now you see where I'm going. Babies come out of the pelvis, don't they? Science! In most non-human primates, the birth canal in the pelvis is relatively straight. A dark slip and slide, if you will. In hominins, though, that changed. Hips became relatively narrow and the birth canal stopped being a slip and slide and turned more into a cylinder that varied in size and shape along its length. The problem with this is that babies have to twist and turn to pass through the birth canal. Birth then becomes more difficult. That's about it for the next 5 million years, but about 2 million years ago, our hominin ancestors began to change again. They lost their AP features, such as a relatively short body, long arms and a small brain. Instead, they began to gain more human-like ones, like taller bodies, shorter arms and bigger brains. Big-brained adults start out life as big-brained babies. So that is a problem when you're trying to get a big-headed baby down a twisty birth canal. Though females had to maintain a narrow pelvis with a constricted birth canal in order to walk efficiently on two legs. Childbirth became a distressingly painful and potentially lethal business, and it remains so to this day. This theory has recently been disputed, with a new school of thought emerging. The theory is that pregnant women have adapted to nourish their fetus for as long as they can before it grows too large to feed internally. The female pelvis is adapted to be just the right size to allow this super baby fetus to travel through safely. And it's dietary changes in the last few thousand years that have upset this fine balance, making childbirth risky, particularly for mothers who have a poor diet. We must remember that when we say ancient Egypt, we're talking about a massive span of time. It spanned from 3100 BCE and ended with the death of Cleopatra in 30 BCE. Near enough 3,000 years of history is such a huge time span. The start of ancient Egypt was just about the end of the Neolithic era, which was the later part of the Stone Age. By the end of it, everyone had a telephone line. No, I'm joking, but the first vending machine was invented by a bloke called Heron of Alexandria. His machine accepted a coin and then dispensed holy water. When the coin was deposited, it fell upon a pan attached to a lever, it was all based on weights and stuff, and it doesn't sound like a big selection, but it's cool all the same. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to childbirth in ancient Egypt. There was a massive difference between how a common woman would give birth versus how fancy folk give birth. That is how it has always been, and probably how it will always be. 
For the peasants, that's you and me, we would have a friend, neighbour or close family member there to help us give birth. If you're a noble woman, you have a maidservant or nurse that probably already lives with you in the home. There was no known word for midwife in ancient Egypt, and any women helping with the birth would have had no formal training, and usually the knowledge was passed down through families from mother to daughter. Due to the hot climate, women often gave birth on the cool roof of the house. Ancient Egyptian women had tools called birthing bricks. Not as bad as they sound, but they do sound incredibly uncomfortable nonetheless. The woman would squat on her heels on these birthing bricks to allow the midwife to hang out underneath, and these effectively gave her a bit of room to catch the baby. I'm sure it's much more complicated than that, but it gives you an idea of the positioning. Birthing chairs were also used, but these were also made of brick, so not very comfortable. The birthing bricks often featured gods and goddesses to help protect the woman and child during the process of birth. Famously, the ancient Egyptians had many gods, and there are some really fascinating ones associated with childbirth and pregnancy. Bess, or Bez, for example, was a dwarf goddess who vanquished evil things. She hovered around the baby while the mother was given birth, which is only mildly disconcerting. Taweret was a pregnant hippo goddess and was the top goddess for pregnancy and childbirth and breastfeeding. I wonder whether she was a goddess that looked just like a hippo but happened to be a goddess, or whether it was like a human with a hippo's head, or basically Gloria, the hippo from the Madagascar film. There was also a moon who helped soothe labour pains by blowing in a cool northern breeze, which I'm sure was much appreciated. Thanks, a moon. Statues and pictures of these goddesses and gods were placed throughout the room and painted on the walls, birthing bricks and chairs that the labouring women used. Another way that midwives called upon divine help and protection during labour was to place a magic ivory crescent-shaped wand, decorated with carvings of deities, snakes, lions and crocodiles, on the stomach of the woman giving birth. Most women delivered their afterbirth. It was then put into a hole in the ground and buried, and most women underwent a significant period of secluded rest and purification afterwards. This very much is not the last we'll hear about secluded rest and purification, and it continues throughout cultures and periods across time. Dating to around 2000 BCE, terracotta figures of standing nude women are the most common type of Mesopotamian votive figures. Sometimes the figure clasps her hands in front of her, while in other examples the figure holds her boobs or breastfeeds a tiny beb. These mass-produced fertility figurines served as votive offerings or as charms to aid in conception and childbirth. I'm not sure whether these were actually held during actual labour or whether they were just seen as good luck charms and generally knocking about in the room. It's quite odd to think of mass production in 2000 BCE. This is the same century when glass starts appearing in the records, and I suppose mass production doesn't have to mean machine-made. Either way, I'd really like a votive figure. In ancient Mesopotamia, the Assyrians used a common fungus called ergo as a treatment for controlling bleeding caused by childbirth. What's interesting about ergo? Well, in 1938, LSD was first created from ergo, which is also known as rye mould. It's toga and sandal time again. Actually, the ancient Greeks didn't actually wear togas, but you get where I'm going with this. Our old friend Pliny the Elder had a lot to say on childbirth, and he was roaming about Rome being a philosopher in the first century CE. Pliny recommended herbs and other plants to be used in the delivery process, which was a practice also linked to religious belief. That's probably as nice as it gets. 
let's hear about some of the delightful tipples that were served at the childbirth bar. For two denarii, you can get a drink sprinkled with powdered sow's dung, which was given to relieve labour pain. This was served along with a lemon. That's a lie, but they can't prove it wasn't. For three denarii, you could get goose semen mixed with water. The imaginary price rise is due to assuming that this was probably harder to acquire. For four denarii, you could get the liquids that flow from a weasel's uterus, though this presumably came in shot form. Also on the menu was earthworms in raisin wine, the membrane of a newborn goat soaked in wine, or hare's rennet in leek juice. Those last three were supposed to aid in the delivery of the placenta. If the childbirth bar isn't for you, you could always try putting a vulture feather under your foot, tying a snakeskin to the thigh, or holding a stick with which a frog has been shaken with a snake. Not a clue either on that last one, to be honest. Failing all of that, there's probably a good idea to put a dog's placenta on your thigh, or smear your belly with hyena fat. Make sure you place the left foot on your belly for an easy birth. Careful though, if you get it wrong and put the hyena's right foot on it, you're going to die. For sore boobs, Pliny suggests rubbing them with sow's blood, goose grease, with rose oil and a spider's web to relieve swelling. Good God, think of how this poor woman would have looked, like the ancient version of Carrie. So, we've heard from Pliny, but what does Sonorus have to say on the matter? He was around in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries and was a Greek physician. He recommended that midwives have the following in their bag of tools to make sure of a safe delivery. Clean olive oil, sea sponges wool bandages to cradle the infant, a pillow and strong-smelling herbs, dirt, apples, lemons, melons, in case of fainting. Just like the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks and Romans also used a birthing stool, though theirs was a little bit fancier. The stool had a crescent-shaped hole for the baby to shoot out of, and the armrest was shaped like the pie symbol for the mother to grab onto. Maths pie, not fruit pie. When I talk about a baby shooting out, that's because I've had no babies of my own, and it's how I imagine it happens, right? They also used a hard low bed with support under the hips. In preparation for labour, the woman was advised to bathe in wine and sweet water baths to calm her mind before delivery. This doesn't sound much different to a modern day birthing pool and sounds quite pleasant, though I'd be surprised if bathing in wine didn't make the woman feel a little bit woozy. Her belly was then rubbed with oil to decrease the appearance of stretch marks and her vagina was rubbed with herbs and injected with softeners such as goose fat. I really do feel sorry for this goose, but at least he had a happy ending before he was sent to goose heaven. (laughs) There are accounts of women being tied to ladders and shaken in order to speed up labour, although Sonorous strongly advised against the practice. This feels like we're in the execution episode again, but nope, still in the childbirth one. I'm glad at least Sonorous didn't recommend it. Most of these practices had little to no medical effect, but they did probably provide some placebo effect. Okay, so you've listened to the advice of Sonorous and Pliny the Elder. You're sitting on your birthing bed with a belly full of goose sperm and a vagina full of goose fat. You've got the hyena's foot resting on your belly for good measure. You must be ready for the delivery then. What a nightmare childbirth must have been for vegetarians, but they might have been better off not being smeared by dead animals. The midwife would ready her supplies as labour began. During the labour process, the mother would lie on her back on a hard low bed with support under her hips. Her thighs were parted with her feet drawn up. Gentle massage was implemented to ease labour pains as cloths soaked in warm olive oil were laid over her stomach and vagina. This is the time that old-timey hot water bottles were used and placed at the woman's side to ease her aches. 
These were warm oil-filled bladders, which seems ingenious. There's not a huge amount of information as to what happened during the actual delivery, other than the woman was made to feel as comfortable as possible until the baby was delivered into the midwife's arms. Midwives would cut the umbilical cord with glass, a pot shard, a reed or even a thin crust of stale bread. I'm guessing what you use depended on your social class because I can't imagine a noble lady's midwife getting out a bit of stale bread from that morning's egg and soldiers. None of these would be sterilised, especially the bread. A marble image from a private collection shows an ancient version of forceps being used around this time. I'd always assumed forceps were a 16th century invention, but as the actual process of birth hasn't changed much, the problem of a stuck baby has been knocking around for millennia, and forceps does seem like the logical tool. At the turn of the 1st century, all the way up to the 13th century, many women found comfort in amulets. Many amulets of the ancient world were made from perishable materials, but from Roman Egypt from around 30 BCE up to the 6th century, examples made from stone have been discovered. One example was inscribed with magical formulas and a representation of the uterus that could be opened and closed with a key. Closed when the women wanted to avoid pregnancy, or wanted to lock her uterus after conception, and opened when she wanted to become pregnant or open up her uterus for labour. This is much easier than taking a pill every day. Just get a bloody amulet. Wish someone had told me. Amulets have been used to protect women for millennia, with examples being found in Europe, Asia and Africa. There are folk beliefs surrounding childbirth, and some cultures believed in female demons who killed children and women, both during and shortly after pregnancy. There's a comforting narrative in this for women facing miscarriage and the death of an infant feeling a sense that losing the child is something that was unavoidable if the demons had decided to take the baby, rather than self-blame. A small comfort, though. Stories of these demons were passed down the generations and told as fairy tales to children. In Greece and Byzantium, being childless effectively ostracised women. In addition to not being able to have the children she wanted, she also lost her social position and was shunned and pushed to the fringes of society. It was even believed that women who died unmarried and childless would become child-killing demons themselves. It's so sad to think of women going through something as stressful and demanding as childbirth, having to worry about child-stealing demons coming to snatch your newborn away, and following that losing a baby sending you into social exile. And I thought that birth couldn't get any more terrifying than it already is. If I thought that clutching an amulet was going to help scare these she-demons away, then I'd be clutching as many as I could get my hands on. We briefly visited ancient Mesopotamia earlier, but we're heading back there, just quite a few years later. Asher was the capital of the old Assyrian Empire, the Middle Assyrian Empire, and for a time, of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In short, it was a proper important place. Medical texts on childbirth, found and excavated in the city dated from the 7th century, were found in what was known as the House of the Incantation Priest. In the 7th century, the Sutton Hoo ship burial was put in the ground in England, which has since been made even more famous by the Netflix film The Dig. I can recommend it if you want a Sunday afternoon film. Anyway, in the priest's house there were lots of healing and ritual tablets, but we're going to hear about the childbirth ones. The tablets outline rituals, procedures and treatments. In the oldest cuneiform on childbirth, we encounter the fetus pictured as being trapped or locked within a body whose door or bolt can't be opened. 
The very act of giving birth is expressed through spoken rituals that emphasise breaking the seals that keep the child trapped in this warm and cosy prison. For those who don't know, and I was among them before researching for this episode, cuneiform is a system of writing first developed by the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia, around 3500 BCE. There are also plant-based potions as well, and you guessed it, animal-based potions. So what's at the Mesopotamian childbirth bar? The only drink on the menu, which could be yours for a mere four shekels, is the poo of a wall lizard, drunk in beer on an empty stomach. It's not very expensive because wall lizard poo is pretty easy to get hold of. We don't actually know what species of lizard they're referring to specifically, but what we do know is that it enjoyed the vertical life. More specifically, a spotted wall lizard is prescribed to help get birth started, but it's not specified how it's to be used. Let's hope for the lizard's sake it just had to be present, but I think we know that probably wasn't the case. And we're back to smearing stuff on the belly. With texts recommending smearing oil or other fatty substances onto the belly. I never thought I'd say smearing so many times this episode, but this is where we are, and we've only reached the 7th century. Another remedy recommends the dust of a dog's crossing place or paw should be smashed in oil and rubbed onto the belly. I hope this means that any dust from a dog's paw was gently tapped into a collecting bowl before giving it a kiss on the noggin to say thank you. Yes, that's what it was and I will not be accepting any other answers at this time. Another remedy prescribes the crushed nest of a Sanutu bird, applied in the same way. The Sanutu bird is the Assyrian name for a swallow, so they'd be knocking their nests from buildings to collect them. The swallow's nest was also used in a remedy against witchcraft and used to calm down children. From the 9th century, in the aristocratic household of Haiyan, Japan, the birthing room, which was supposed to be in the north of the house, was covered in white cloth, though this was not a private affair. Male and female relatives in attendance would peep over the top of curtains, as childbirth was somewhat of a spectacle, just what every expectant mother wants. In this culture, they also believed in spooks and had a Buddhist monk, a female spiritual medium called Amiko, and other religious figures sat nearby the mother as she laboured. Their prayers warded off hungry ghosts, lowly spirits that gathered around people who were near death. I don't know whether this would have been comforting or just a reminder of how dangerous birth was. Something that is clearly evidenced by artistic representations and continued traditions is that women have not exclusively given birth while lying down like they do today. Carvings and illustrations all the way from ancient Egypt until recent centuries depict women giving birth in standing, squatting, kneeling and sitting positions. For the most part, despite how unsavoury the vast majorities of the remedies sound from the ancient world, at least they were trying to keep their mothers comfortable. I was expecting it to be a bit more of a gruesome and heartless affair, but it's a stark reminder that people from antiquity were largely just like you and me. Part 2 of Childbirth Across the Ages will be covering the medieval period, all the way up to the 1960s, where we'll be finding out what the hell a chainsaw has got to do with childbirth. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. Five-star reviews this week? Here we go! Miss Mario says, An easy-to-listen-to podcast that's funny and incredibly informative. 
Who doesn't want to know about the weird and wonderful parts of history that the books left out? Highly anticipating the next instalment. And Train's Eyes says, I've just listened to Natalie's first episode and I'm absolutely delighted. Can't wait to hear more. Lovely, easy to follow whilst getting on with work. Interesting and thought-provoking. I really enjoyed this and if you're interested in the lesser cover elements of history, I think you will too. Thank you as ever for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into childbirth across the ages, part two.